Psalm 6. Prayer for recovery from grave illness. To the leader with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Lord, heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. My soul also is struck with terror. While you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, save my life. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of my grief. They grow weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror. They shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. 150 psalms that appear in our Bible. Between a half and two-thirds of them are considered to be psalms of lament crying out to God in the midst of suffering and struggle, our own and the suffering of others. Of the Psalms of Lament, Psalm 6, to my ear, may be the most raw and pain-filled, which perhaps begs the question of why I chose this psalm to preach about when there were a whole bunch of other psalms I could have, I could have chosen. Our choice of scripture passage uh, is a fair question for a preacher from week to week, uh, and the reasons can be complex. I think we've all heard sermons that felt as though they were spoken directly to us, and then we've heard, we've heard uh, others that left us kind of scratching our heads wondering, what was that all about? Why on earth would a pastor choose to preach on that text? Well, Psalm 6 may not be one of our go-to psalms, but there's no doubt, in my mind anyway, why it's here in our scriptures, and why it's worthy and compelling to preach. It's here in our scriptures, and it's worth preaching because it's real. It's indisputably real. Ancient Israel lived it. We are living it. Every generation in between has lived this psalm. We have any inclination to question how we today are living it, we need only ask the family members of the 240 hostages taken by Hamas in Israel on October 7th, or the 1,700 Israelis killed in that horrific attack. 
Can we doubt that they drench their pillows every night with their weeping? Or the parents of the estimated 5,000 children who've been killed in Gaza in the past five weeks? Do we doubt that their eyes are wasting away with grief? And the two million Palestinians living there currently, do we doubt that their bones are shaking with terror? How many other places around the world do these words express what people are living? Silently or aloud, crying out in anguish, Oh God, how long? How long? We don't even finish the question. It just hangs there, how long? How many of us here are asking those very same questions at this very moment? The crying out of Psalm 6, though, is not for the suffering of the world. It's the cry of the pain of an individual. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the the psalm is the crying out of every individual who has ever lived long enough to develop some measure of awareness of their own experience of life in this world. Long enough, who's lived long enough to realize that things are not always fair. We don't always get what we want or what we deserve. Realization that life hurts. This is absolutely my cry of pain. The emotion that came out when I was reading it, that was real. I strongly suspect this psalm expresses many of your pain right now as well. This is an undeniable reality of life. It's not fair and it hurts. This is not the only reality of life, of course. The scriptures and particularly the the New Testament's witness to the good news, the gospel of Christ Jesus, they proclaim the joyful reality of the kingdom of God. But the Psalms, and particularly the Psalms of lament, like Psalm 6, give voice to what we all at certain times experience. They may not sound to our ears very comforting or uplifting, the words may not. Perhaps they're not the words that we expect to hear preached. But they embody truth. And to avert our eyes from that truth is also blind ourselves to what is also true, that God's vision for life is very different. That one day our experience of life here and now will give way to a new experience of life, a life made new. That in Christ, we've been given a roadmap to get from here to there, a guide to navigating the realities of this life via the ways of grace and hope. A roadmap can take many forms, and a roadmap can offer any number of ways to get to a particular destination. There's most of the time, there's not just one way to get from here to there. Music 
is a, an especially uniquely effective guide for navigating the ways of grace and hope. And when our journeys take us through the harsh territory of lament, the music called the blues can be particularly effective in helping us find our way. Now, just keep in mind that when I talk about the blues, I'm using the same degree of, of linguistic precision that I'd be using if I referred to classical music or rock and roll music. It's not all the same, right? There's a tremendous range of, of expressions and styles and characteristics within each of those genres. Blues music embodies centuries, if not millennia, of development across multiple cultures and centuries and continents. In other words, it's a musical form, the blues is, that's incredibly complex and nuanced and rich. Olivia really, really helped me understand this. Our conversations just blew my understanding of the blues wide open and, and my appre expanded my appreciation uh, of the blues beyond the rather narrow understanding that, that I originally had of what blues music was. And thanks to our conversations and our partnership, I am more convinced than ever that Psalm 6 can accurately and legitimately be considered ancient Israel blues. So let's recognize that all blues is not the same. There's the music we refer to, we often refer to as the Delta Blues, music developed in the American Reconstruction Era South, particularly in the region of the Mississippi Delta. There's Chicago Blues, which is, uh, as, as the music moved north, is a more electrified urban expression of the blues, the emotion, the music of the blues. There are expressions of the blues in the music of Appalachia, which embodies aspects of the Delta blues as well as influences derived from the Celtic folk music of England, or Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, which itself shares many characteristics of certain forms of music indigenous to Africa. One of the most distinctive characteristics of the blues is its basis upon a five-note musical scale. We call that a pentatonic, pentatonic scale. Olivia explained it to me. The pentatonic scale is notable for a couple reasons. One, it's a scale native to really diverse continents and places that historically and geographically have had little contact with each other. East Asia, Africa, and Ireland, for example. I know you didn't know I was going to quote you. But this was, this was really good for me, so I uh, hope that's okay. It's also ancient, predating the diatonic scale. That's the scale, the do-re-mi scale, we're probably more used to, which was started by uh, Italian monks in the 11th century. This is the, the seven-note, uh, the diatonic scale is that seven-note scale that we're probably more familiar with. So that's a technical observation about blues music, or a couple technical observations about blues music. But as Olivia further explained to me, the appeal of blues music goes much, much deeper. She wrote, I think we do connect to the sound of the pentatonic scale 
more deeply than the diatonic. Since our minds are musical by nature. In fact, many scholars believe that Homo sapiens were singing before they were using verbal words. The iconic sound in the blues scale is the third. This, this musical sound of the blues is all about bending the third note so that it can be major, minor, both, or neither. Let me do that again. Bend that third note. You hear that? If you were paying attention in the, what was the first hymn we sang, uh, when in music, wait a minute, not, not that one, but the God is Calling, yeah. She, when we sang that, um, in fact, would you, would you play just the first line again? And if you've sung this hymn before, um, this should have struck you because it's not the way we usually sing it. But listen to the way uh, Olivia... Olivia played it. Yeah. Yeah. So that that don't know. That's the bending, the bending of a note. And when that happens, it touches something. When we sang that hymn, I don't know if you noticed, uh, but but we got to that part and I, I just my body just responded to it. Maybe Maybe yours didn't, I don't know. But there's something about the bending of that note that touches something deep inside us. That's what the blues does, is it touches something deep that we feel. We feel the music. We don't just hear it. It gives, back to Olivia's words, this blue note is what gives the music a complexity that we mostly find ineffable. It can be hard to explain why a song can feel so good when it feels so sad. But I think in our hearts, we all know, this is Olivia's word still, I think in our hearts, we all know that this complexity is part of what makes us real, if we're honest about it. Word. Another observation we can make about the blues is that although instrumental accompaniment is almost universal in the blues, and, and there are some aspects of, of uh, blues instrumentation that are really distinctive to us, the blues is essentially a vocal form of music. An online history of the blues published by Public Radio explains, blues songs are lyrical rather than narrative. Blues singers are expressing feelings rather than telling stories. The emotion expressed is generally one of sadness or melancholy, often due to problems of love, but also of oppression and hard times. All of this is what compels me to observe that in both content and style, Psalm 6 is the blues, through and through. Content is essentially the kind of lamentation that literally every human being on the planet could and in fact has made. This lament, though, this lament has survived for millennia. And it's included in the foundational and authoritative scriptural canon for two of the world's major religions. Why? 
what is it that is so powerful and exceptional about this song? What was it that the rabbis and the elders recognized in this psalm that they determined was essential for them to preserve and for us to receive and find guidance in? Well, part of it, perhaps, is this. We've already identified this. Life involves struggle and suffering, period. A person suffering and struggling alone, that can be tragic. In fact, that's kind of the classic definition of tragedy. But lament is not tragedy. Tragedy, in the end, comes down to the conclusion that the bad guys win at least as often as the good guys and that even our best, most virtual efforts may, in the end, amount to nothing and that it really doesn't matter after all. It's all random. By contrast, even the most agonizing psalms, the most agonized Psalms of lament include the affirmation that even in our darkest moments, God is with us. God cares for us. Our faith in God is warranted. And sometimes in ways we can't comprehend, our faith in God is effective. And that ultimately, God and God's people will prevail. It's helpful, too, to recognize the distinction or a distinction between lament and complaint. The Bible contains both. In the wilderness, Israel complained to God about the lack of food and bread and meat and water, about the miserable conditions. They assumed the worst about God. He is out to kill us. Their complaints were actually a way of putting God on trial. And, and trying to hold God accountable for their miserable situation. But in the Psalms, Israel appeals to God's chesed, God's unfailing and steadfast love. The Psalms of Lament hold fast to the conviction that God is a God of justice and righteousness, that God has been faithful in the past, that therefore we can rely on God's future faithfulness. Neither the cynicism of tragedy nor the accusations of complaint are lament. Lament is, through and through, prayer. And it's prayer that presupposes a God who not only has the power to change things, but is a God who cares about and listens to what we, God's creation, have to say. Lament affirms that as broken and imperfect as we are, our lives and our will and God's reality and God's will are somehow knit together permanently and inseparably. That's the affirmation of every psalm. The psalms don't try to explain or to deny or explain away the painful reality that we can all cl clearly see, life is unfair and life hurts. We can all see that. The New Interpreter's Bible observe, observes about the Psalms. Psalm 6 encourages us to understand sickness, suffering, and death as the conditions of creature, creatureliness that should make it obvious to us that the ability to secure our lives 
lies ultimately beyond our control. This relinquishment of self-control in dependence upon the grace and love of God has the liberating effect of allowing us to accept sickness, suffering, and death as inevitable realities of being mortal, finite, and fallible. Like the psalmist, we live daily with the stark realities of terror, disease, weariness, grief, and the awareness of our mortality. But none of these realities is sufficiently powerful to separate us from the love of God. Notice, too, that the psalm doesn't resolve the painful situation that precipitated this lament in the first place. Everything, nothing gets fixed. The psalm gives us no evidence that we've been healed or our situation fundamentally changed. My body is still sick. My survival remains uncertain. I'm still surrounded by people and circumstances that seek to do me harm, or at the very least, don't care a whit about me. What the psalm expresses is that although I am suffering, I will not give in to despair. Life, other people, perhaps even God, may not be treating me fairly, but I don't have to be quiet about it. I can call out the unfairness. I can call out the unfairness directly to God. And I will. I will call it out for what it is. It's unfair. It hurts. And I will look my enemies in the eye and I will tell them that their hold on me is coming to an end. I will proclaim that God has heard my prayer even as I'm still making it. God has heard me. God accepts me, and God will vindicate me. And most importantly, perhaps, the Psalms of Lament say, I am still here. We are still here. What an amazing statement of faith. It's a depth of faith I most often don't feel that I possess. Stuck in my sickness and fear in body and mind and spirit, I most often cannot muster the confidence and the faith to claim my healing before I feel it. I admire the people who can. But I can at least profess my faith that God can heal me and my hope that God will heal and save me. I can make the profession of faith that believes that God makes life and hope possible even amidst the stark realities of terror, disease, weariness, grief, and even death. This is the blues. I may be suffering, but I can sing. The pain I feel might be mine alone, but when I sing about it, we can sing about it together. To sing when we feel this way is a powerful profession of faith. And it binds me, when I sing, it binds me to a community of others who struggle, suffer, and yet sing. The blues is a powerful way to give voice 
to what we're feeling. Singing the blues allows us to more fully embody the emotions, to feel the emotions, to express them, to give expression to our feelings in a way that writing or speaking often just can't give. The expression of these feelings is an act of faith on my part. When we express these things together, we become the community of faith, bound by our shared experience to each other and to God. The expression of these emotions becomes a means of grace when it is shared with others. When we express it out loud and together. When, in other words, we sing the blues together. I want to share one additional insight I received from Olivia that really stuck with me. The song Olivia is about to sing is a form of uh, American blues more representative of Appalachia than the American South. There are obviously stylistic, stylistic differences, different uses of rhythm and melody. You'll hear those in a minute, particularly if you can kind of keep the, the Psalm 6 blues that Olivia sang a moment ago in mind as you listen to what she's about to sing. Make no mistake, they are both Psalm 6, and they are both blues. But I asked Olivia to help me understand why I experienced this next song differently. In the, in the more southern Delta blues style that she sang earlier, I can feel the pain. I felt it as she was singing it. In, in High Lonesome, which she's about to share with us, I can still hear the pain, but there's something about the music that also strikes me as almost comical in a way. It kind of makes me want to laugh a little bit. It's as if the sadness is being turned into kind of a joke. I asked her about that, and, and she didn't hesitate, and she had this awesome twinkle in her eye. When she looked at me, she said, yep, there is, there is a playfulness. It's, it's a joke. Because if we don't, we joke about it to keep from killing ourselves. I may have said this at the time, Olivia. That'll preach. That'll preach. Sometimes we have to sing or laugh or both just to keep from wanting to kill ourselves. So thank you, Olivia, for preaching it to us again reminding us that, yeah, things are going to suck, really suck, but I can still sing. We can still sing together. And sometimes when we sing together, we might even find ourselves smiling, maybe even wanting to dance. Thank you. Thanks be to God.